Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 2, Part 1 Forse, se tu gustasi una sol volta, la millesima parte delle gioge, che gusta un cor amato riamando, diresti ripentita, Sospirando. Perduto è tutto il tempo, che in amar non si spende. Tasso. Hadst thou but tasted once the thousandth part of joys which bless the loved and loving heart, your words, repentant and your sighs, would prove lost in the time which is not passed in love. The monks, having attended their abbot to the door of his cell, he dismissed them with an air of conscious superiority, in which humility's semblance combated with the reality of pride. He was no sooner alone than he gave free loose to the indulgence of his vanity. When he remembered the enthusiasm which his discourse had excited, his heart swelled with rapture, and his imagination presented him with splendid visions of aggrandizement. He looked round him with exultation, and pride told him loudly that he was superior to the rest of his fellow-creatures. Who, thought he, who but myself has passed the ordeal of youth, yet sees no single stain upon his conscience? Who else has subdued the violence of strong passions, and an impetuous temperament, and submitted even from the dawn of life to voluntary retirement? I seek for such a man in vain. I see no one but myself possessed of such resolution. Religion cannot boast Ambrosio's equal. How powerful an effect did my discourse produce upon its auditors! How they crowded round me! How they loaded me with benedictions and pronounced me the sole uncorrupted pillar of the church! What then, now, is left for me to do? nothing but to watch as carefully over the conduct of my brethren as I have hitherto watched over my own. Yet, hold! May I not be tempted from those paths which, till now, I have pursued without one moment's wandering? Am I not a man whose nature is frail and prone to error? I must now abandon the solitude of my retreat." The fairest and noblest dames of Madrid continually present themselves at the abbey, and will use no other confessor. I must accustom my eyes to objects of temptation, 
and expose myself to the seduction of luxury and desire. Should I meet in that world which I am constrained to enter, some lovely female, lovely as yon Madonna, as he said this, he fixed his eyes upon a picture of the virgin which was suspended opposite to him. This, for two years, had been the object of his increasing wonder and adoration. He paused and gazed upon it with delight. "'What beauty in that countenance,' he continued, after a silence of some minutes. "'How graceful is the turn of that head! What sweetness, yet what majesty in her divine eyes! How softly her cheek reclines upon her hand!' Can the rose vie with the blush of that cheek? Can the lily rival the whiteness of that hand? Oh, if such a creature existed, and existed but for me! Were I permitted to twine round my fingers those golden ringlets, and press with my lips the treasures of that snowy bosom, gracious God, should I then resist the temptation? Should I not barter for a single embrace the reward of my sufferings for thirty years? Should I not abandon? Fool that I am! Whither do I suffer my admiration of this picture to hurry me? Away, impure ideas! Let me remember that woman is forever lost to me. Never was mortal form so perfect as this picture, but even did such exist, the trial might be too mighty for a common virtue. But Ambrosio's is proof against temptation, Temptation, did I say? To me it would be none. What charms me, when ideal and considered as a superior being, would disgust me, become woman and tainted with all the failings of mortality. It is not the woman's beauty that fills me with such enthusiasm. It is the painter's skill that I admire. It is the divinity that I adore. Are not the passions dead in my bosom? Have I not freed myself from the frailty of mankind? Fear not, Ambrosio. Take confidence in the strength of your virtue. Enter boldly into the world, to whose failings you are superior. Reflect that you are now exempted from humanity's defects, and defy all the arts of the spirits of darkness. They shall know you for what you are. Here his reverie was interrupted by three soft knocks at the door of his cell. With difficulty did the abbot awake from his delirium. The knocking was repeated. "'Who is there?' said Ambrosio at length. "'It is only Rosario,' replied a gentle voice. "'Enter, enter, my son.' The door was immediately opened, and Rosario appeared with a small basket in his hand. Rosario was a young novice, belonging to the monastery, who in three months intended to make his profession. A sort of mystery enveloped this youth, which rendered him at once an object of interest and curiosity. His hatred of society, his profound melancholy, his rigid observance of the duties of his order, and his voluntary seclusion from the world, at his age so unusual, attracted the notice of the whole fraternity. He seemed fearful of being recognized, and no one had ever seen his face. His head was continually muffled up in his cowl, yet such of his features as accident discovered appeared the most beautiful and noble. Rosario was the only name by which he was known in the monastery. 
no one knew from whence he came, and, when questioned on the subject, he preserved a profound silence. A stranger, whose rich habit and magnificent equipage declared him to be of distinguished rank, had engaged the monks to receive a novice, and had deposited the necessary sums. The next day he returned with Rosario, and from that time no more had been heard of him. The youth had carefully avoided the company of the monks. He answered their civilities with sweetness but reserve, and evidently showed that his inclination led him to solitude. To this general rule the superior was the only exception. To him he looked up with a respect approaching idolatry. He sought his company with the most attentive assiduity, and eagerly seized every means to ingratiate himself in his favor. In the abbot's society, his heart seemed to be at ease, and an air of gaiety pervaded his whole manners and discourse. Ambrosio, on his side, did not feel less attracted towards the youth. With him alone did he lay aside his habitual severity. When he spoke to him, he insensibly assumed a tone milder than was usual to him, and no voice sounded so sweet to him as did Rosario's. He repaid the youth's attentions by instructing him in various sciences. The novice received his lessons with docility. Ambrosio was every day more charmed with the vivacity of his genius, the simplicity of his manners, and the rectitude of his heart. In short, he loved him with all the affection of a father. He could not help sometimes indulging a desire secretly to see the face of his pupil, but his rule of self-denial extended even to curiosity and prevented him from communicating his wishes to the youth. "'Pardon my intrusion, father,' said Rosario, while he placed his basket upon the table. "'I come to you a suppliant. Hearing that a dear friend is dangerously ill, I entreat your prayers for his recovery. If supplications can prevail upon heaven to spare him, surely yours must be efficacious.' "'Whatever depends upon me, my son, you know that you may command. "'What is your friend's name?' "'Vincentio de la Ronda.' "'Tis sufficient. I will not forget him in my prayers, "'and may our thrice-blessed St. Francis deign to listen to my intercession. "'What have you in your basket, Rosario?' "'A few of those flowers, reverend father, which I have observed to be most acceptable to you.' Will you permit my arranging them in your chamber? Your attentions charm me, my son. While Rosario dispersed the contents of his basket in small vases placed for that purpose in various parts of the room, the abbot thus continued the conversation. I saw you not in the church this evening, Rosario. Yet I was present, father. I am too grateful for your protection to lose an opportunity of witnessing your triumph. Alas, Rosario, I have but little cause to triumph. The saint spoke by my mouth. To him belongs all the merit. It seems, then, you were contented with my discourse? Contented, say you? Oh, you surpassed yourself. Never did I hear such eloquence, save once. Here the novice heaved an involuntary sigh. "'When was that once?' demanded the abbot. "'When you preached upon the sudden indisposition of our late superior.' "'I remember it. That is more than two years ago.' 
And were you present? I knew you not at that time, Rosario. Tis true, father, and would to God I had expired ere I beheld that day. What sufferings, what sorrows should I have escaped? Sufferings at your age, Rosario? Ay, father, sufferings which, if known to you, would equally raise your anger and compassion, sufferings which form at once the torment and pleasure of my existence. Yet in this retreat my bosom would feel tranquil, were it not for the tortures of apprehension. O oh God, O oh God, how cruel is a life of fear! Father, I have given up all. I have abandoned the world and its delights forever. Nothing now remains, nothing now has charms for me, but your friendship, but your affection. If I lose that, father, oh, if I lose that, tremble at the effects of my despair. You apprehend the loss of my friendship? How has my conduct justified this fear? Know me better, Rosario, and think me worthy of your confidence. What are your sufferings? Reveal them to me, and believe that if tis in my power to relieve them, ah, tis in no one's power but yours, yet I must not let you know them. You would hate me for my avowal. You would drive me from your presence with scorn and ignominy. My son, I conjure you, I entreat you. For pity's sake, inquire no further. I must not, I dare not. Hark, the bell rings for vespers. Father, your benediction, and I leave you. As he said this, he threw himself upon his knees and received the blessing which he demanded. Then, pressing the abbot's hand to his lips, he started from the ground and hastily quitted the apartment. Soon after, Ambrosio descended to vespers which were celebrated in a small chapel belonging to the abbey, filled with surprise at the singularity of the youth's behavior. Vespers being over, the monks retired to their respective cells. The abbot alone remained in the chapel to receive the nuns of St. Clare. He had not been long seated in the confessional chair before the prioress made her appearance. Each of the nuns was heard in her turn, while the others awaited with the domina in the adjoining vestry. Ambrosio listened to the confessions with attention, made many exhortations, enjoined penance proportioned to each offence, and for some time everything went on as usual, till at last one of the nuns, conspicuous from the nobleness of her air and elegance of her figure, carelessly permitted a letter to fall from her bosom. She was retiring unconscious of her loss. Ambrosio supposed it to have been written by some one of her relations, and picked it up, intending to restore it to her. "'Stay, daughter,' said he, you have let fall. At this moment, the paper being already open, his eye involuntarily read the first words. He started back with surprise. The nun had turned round on hearing his voice. She perceived her letter in his hand, and, uttering a shriek of terror, flew hastily to regain it. Hold, said the friar in a tone of severity. Daughter, I must read this letter. Then I am lost, she exclaimed clasping her hands together wildly. All color instantly faded from her face. She trembled with agitation, and was obliged to fold her arms round a pillar of the chapel to save herself from sinking upon the floor. In the meanwhile, the abbot read the following lines. 
All is ready for your escape, my dearest Agnes. At twelve tomorrow night I shall expect to find you at the garden door. I have obtained the key, and a few hours will suffice to place you in a secure asylum. Let no mistaken scruples induce you to reject the certain means of preserving yourself and the innocent creature whom you nourish in your bosom. Remember that you had promised to be mine long ere you engaged yourself to the church, that your situation will soon be evident to the prying eyes of your companions, and that flight is the only means of avoiding the effects of their malevolent resentment. Farewell, my Agnes, my dear and destined wife. Fail not to be at the garden door at twelve. As soon as he had finished, Ambrosio bent an eye stern and angry upon the imprudent nun. This letter must to the prioress, said he, and passed her. His words sounded like thunder to her ears. She awoke from her torpidity only to be sensible of the dangers of her situation. She followed him hastily, and detained him by his garment. Stay, oh, stay, she cried, in the accents of despair, while she threw herself at the friar's feet and bathed them with her tears. Father, compassionate my youth. Look with indulgence on a woman's weakness and deign to conceal my frailty. The remainder of my life shall be employed in expiating this simple fault, and your lenity will bring back a soul to heaven. Amazing confidence! What, shall St. Clair's convent become the retreat of prostitutes? Shall I suffer the Church of Christ to cherish in its bosom debauchery and shame? Unworthy wretch! Such lenity would make me your accomplice. Mercy would here be criminal. You have abandoned yourself to a seducer's lust. You have defiled the sacred habit by your impurity, and still dare you think yourself deserving my compassion? Hence, nor detain me longer. Where is the lady prioress? he added, raising his voice. Hold, father, hold. Hear me but for one moment. Tax me not with impurity, nor think that I have erred from the warmth of temperament. Long before I took the veil, Ramon was the master of my heart. He inspired me with the purest, the most irreproachable passion, and was on the point of becoming my lawful husband. A horrible adventure and the treachery of a relation separated us from each other. I believed him forever lost to me, and threw myself into a convent from motives of despair. Accident again united us. I could not refuse myself the melancholy pleasure of mingling my tears with his. We met nightly in the gardens of St. Clair, and in an unguarded moment I violated my vows of chastity. I shall soon become a mother. Reverend Ambrosio, take compassion on me. Take compassion on the innocent being whose existence is attached to mine. If you discover my imprudence to the domina, both of us are lost. The punishment which the laws of St. Clair assign to unfortunates like myself is most severe and cruel. Worthy, worthy father, let not your own untainted conscience render you unfeeling towards those less able to withstand temptation. Let not mercy be the only virtue of which your heart is unsusceptible. Pity me, most reverend, restore my letter, nor doom me to inevitable destruction." Your boldness confounds me. Shall I conceal your crime? 
I, whom you have deceived by your feigned confession? No, daughter, no. I will render you a more essential service. I will rescue you from perdition, in spite of yourself. Penance and mortification shall expiate your offense, and severity force you back to the paths of holiness. What ho? Mother St. Agatha. Father, by all that is sacred, by all that is most dear to you, I supplicate, I entreat. Release me! I will not hear you. Where is the Domina? Mother St. Agatha, where are you? The door of the vestry opened, and the prioress entered the chapel, followed by her nuns. Cruel, cruel, exclaimed Agnes, relinquishing her hold. Wild and desperate, she threw herself upon the ground, beating her bosom and rending her veil in all the delirium of despair. The nuns gazed with astonishment upon the scene before them. The friar now presented the fatal paper to the prioress, informed her of the manner in which he had found it, and added that it was her business to decide what penance the delinquent merited. While she perused the letter, the domina's countenance grew inflamed with passion. What? Such a crime committed in her convent and made known to Ambrosio, to the idol of Madrid, to the man whom she was most anxious to impress, with the opinion of the strictness and regularity of her house? Words were inadequate to express her fury. She was silent, and darted upon the prostrate nun looks of menace and malignity. "'Away with her to the convent!' said she at length to some of her attendants. Two of the oldest nuns, now approaching Agnes, raised her forcibly from the ground and prepared to conduct her from the chapel. "'What!' she exclaimed suddenly, shaking off their hold with distracted gestures. "'Is all hope then lost? Already do you drag me to punishment? Where are you, Raymond? Oh, save me, save me!' Then, casting upon the abbot a frantic look, "'Hear me,' she continued, "'man of an hard heart, hear me, proud, stern, and cruel. You could have saved me, you could have restored me to happiness and virtue, but would not. You are the destroyer of my soul, you are my murderer, and on you all the curse of my death and my unborn infants.' Insolent in your yet unshaken virtue, you disdain the prayers of a penitent. But God will show mercy, though you show none. And where is the merit of your boasted virtue? What temptations have you vanquished? Coward, you have fled from it, not opposed seduction. But the day of trial will arrive. Oh, then, when you yield to impetuous passions, when you feel that man is weak and born to err, when, shuddering, you look back upon your crimes and solicit with terror the mercy of your God, oh, in that fearful moment, think upon me. Think upon your cruelty. Think upon Agnes and despair of pardon. As she uttered these last words, her strength was exhausted, and she sank inanimate upon the bosom of a nun who stood near her. She was immediately conveyed from the chapel, and her companions followed her. Ambrosio had not listened to her reproaches without emotion. 
a secret pang at his heart made him feel that he had treated this unfortunate with too great severity he therefore detained the prioress and ventured to pronounce some words in favor of the delinquent the violence of her despair said he proves that at least vice is not become familiar to her perhaps by treating her with somewhat less rigor than is generally practiced and mitigating in some degree the accustomed penance mitigated father interrupted the lady prioress not i believe me the laws of our order are strict and severe they have fallen into disuse of late but the crime of agnes shows me the necessity of their revival i go to signify my intention to the convent and agnes shall be the first to feel the rigor of those laws which shall be obeyed to the very letter father farewell thus saying she hastened out of the chapel i have done my duty said ambrosio to himself still did he not feel perfectly satisfied by this reflection to dissipate the unpleasant ideas which this scene had excited in him upon quitting the chapel he descended into the abbey garden in all madrid there was no spot more beautiful or better regulated it was laid out with the most exquisite taste the choicest flowers adorned it in the height of luxuriance and though artfully arranged seemed only planted by the hand of nature fountains springing from basins of white marble cooled the air with perpetual showers and the walls were entirely covered by jasmine vines and honeysuckles the hour now added to the beauty of the scene the full moon ranging through a blue and cloudless sky shed upon the trees a trembling lustre and the waters of the fountain sparkled in the silver beam a gentle breeze breathed the fragrance of orange blossoms along the alleys and the nightingale poured forth her melodious murmur from the shelter of an artificial wilderness thither the abbot bent his steps in the bosom of the little grove stood a rustic grotto formed in imitation of a hermitage the walls were constructed of roots of trees and the interstices filled up with moss and ivy seats of turf were placed on either side and a natural cascade fell from the rock above buried in himself the monk approached the spot the universal calm had communicated itself to his bosom and a voluptuous tranquillity spread languor through his soul he reached the hermitage and was entering to repose himself when he stopped on perceiving it to be already occupied extended upon one of the banks lay a man in a melancholy posture his head was supported upon his arm and he seemed lost in meditation the monk drew nearer and recognized rosario he watched him in silence and entered not the hermitage after some minutes the youth raised his eyes and fixed them mournfully upon the opposite wall yes said he with a deep and plaintive sigh i feel all the happiness of thy situation all the misery of my own happy were i could i think like thee could i look like thee with disgust upon mankind could bury myself forever in some impenetrable solitude and forget that the world holds beings deserving to be loved o oh god what a blessing would misanthropy be to me that is a singular thought rosario said the abbot entering the grotto you here reverend father 
cried the novice. At the same time, starting from his place in confusion, he drew his cowl hastily over his face. Ambrogio seated himself upon the bank and obliged the youth to place himself by him. "'You must not indulge this disposition to melancholy,' said he. "'What can possibly have made you view, in so desirable a light, misanthropy, of all sentiments the most hateful?' "'The perusal of these verses, father, which till now had escaped my observation. "'The brightness of the moonbeams permitted my reading them, and oh, how I envy the feelings of the writer!' As he said this, he pointed to a marble tablet fixed against the opposite wall. On it were engraved the following lines. Inscription in an Hermitage Whoe'er thou art these lines now reading, Think not, though from the world receding, I joy my lonely days to lead in this desert drear, That with remorse a conscience bleeding hath led me here. No thought of guilt my bosom sours, Free-willed I fled from courtly bowers, For well I saw in halls and towers That lust and pride, The arch-fiend's dearest darkest powers, In state preside. I saw mankind with vice encrusted, I saw that honor's sword was rusted, That few for aught but folly lusted, That he was still deceived, who trusted in love or friend. And hither came, with men disgusted, my life to end. In this lone cave, in garments lowly, alike a foe to noisy folly and brow-bent gloomy melancholy, I wear away my life, and in my office wholly consume the day. This rock, my shield when storms are blowing, the limpid streamlet yonder flying, supplying drink, the earth bestowing my simple food. But few enjoy the calm I know in this desert rude. Content and comfort bless me more in this grot than e'er I felt before in a palace, and with thoughts still soaring to God on high, each night and morn, with voice imploring, this wish I sigh. Let me, O Lord, from life retire, Unknown each guilty worldly fire, Remorseful throb or loose desire, And when I die, let me in this belief expire. To God I fly. Stranger, if full of youth and riot, As yet no grief has marred thy quiet, Thou haply throwest a scornful eye At the hermit's prayer. But if thou hast a cause to sigh at thy fault or care, If thou hast known false love's vexation, Or hast been exiled from thy nation, Or guilt affrights thy contemplation, And makes thee pine, Oh, how must thou lament thy station, And envy mine! Were it possible, said the friar, for man to be so totally wrapped up in himself as to live in absolute seclusion from human nature, and could yet feel the contented tranquillity which these lines express, I allow that the situation would be more desirable than to live in a world so pregnant with every vice and every folly. But this never can be the case. 
This inscription was merely placed here for the ornament of the grotto, and the sentiments and the hermit are equally imaginary. Man was born for society. However little he may be attached to the world, he never can wholly forget it or bear to be wholly forgotten by it. Disgusted at the guilt or absurdity of mankind, the misanthrope flies from it. He resolves to become a hermit, and buries himself in the cavern of some gloomy rock. While hate inflames his bosom, possibly he may feel contented with his situation, but when his passions begin to cool, when time has mellowed his sorrows and healed those wounds which he bore with him to his solitude, think you that content becomes his companion? Ah, no, Rosario. No longer sustained by the violence of his passions, he feels all the monotony of his way of living, and his heart becomes the prey of ennui and weariness. He looks round and finds himself alone in the universe. The love of society revives in his bosom, and he pants to return to that world which he has abandoned. Nature loses all her charms in his eyes. No one is near him to point out her beauties or share in his admiration of her excellence and variety. Propped upon the fragment of some rock, he gazes upon the tumbling waterfall with a vacant eye. He views without emotion the glory of the setting sun. Slowly he returns to his cell at evening, for no one there is anxious for his arrival. He has no comfort in his solitary, unsavory meal. He throws himself upon his couch of moss, despondent and dissatisfied, and wakes only to pass a day as joyless, as monotonous as the former. You amaze me, father. Suppose that circumstances condemned you to solitude. Would not the duties of religion and the consciousness of a life well spent communicate to your heart that calm which... I should deceive myself did I fancy that they could. I am convinced of the contrary, and that all my fortitude would not prevent me from yielding to melancholy and disgust. After consuming the day in study, if you knew my pleasure at meeting my brethren in the evening, after passing many a long hour in solitude, if I could express to you the joy which I feel at once more beholding a fellow-creature, tis in this particular that I place the principal merit of a monastic institution. It secludes man from the temptations of vice. It procures that leisure necessary for the proper service of the supreme. It spares him the mortification of witnessing the crimes of the worldly, and yet permits him to enjoy the blessings of society. And do you, Rosario, do you envy a hermit's life? Can you be thus blind to the happiness of your situation? Reflect upon it for a moment. This abbey is become your asylum, your regularity, your gentleness, your talents have rendered you the object of universal esteem. You are secluded from the world which you profess to hate, yet you remain in possession of the benefits of society. And that a society composed of the most estimable of mankind. Father, father, tis that which causes my torment. Happy had it been for me had my life been passed among the vicious and abandoned, had I never heard pronounced the name of virtue. Tis my unbounded adoration of religion, tis my soul's exquisite sensibility of the beauty of fair and good, that loads me with shame, that hurries me to perdition. 
Oh, that I had never seen these abbey walls. How, Rosario? When we last conversed, you spoke in a different tone. Is my friendship then become of such little consequence? Had you never seen these abbey walls, you never had seen me. Can that really be your wish? Had never seen you? repeated the novice, starting from the bank and grasping the friar's hand with a frantic air. You? You? Would to God that lightning had blasted them before you ever met my eyes. Would to God that I were never to see you more, and could forget that I had ever seen you. With these words he flew hastily from the grotto. Ambrosio remained in his former attitude, reflecting on the youth's unaccountable behavior. He was inclined to suspect the derangement of his senses, yet the general tenor of his conduct, the connection of his ideas and calmness of his demeanor, till the moment of his quitting the grotto, seemed to discountenance his conjecture. After a few minutes, Rosario returned. He again seated himself upon the bank. He reclined his cheek upon one hand, and with the other wiped away the tears which trickled from his eyes at intervals. The monk looked upon him with compassion, and forbore to interrupt his meditations. Both observed for some time a profound silence. The nightingale had now taken her station upon an orange-tree fronting the hermitage, and poured forth a strain the most melancholy and melodious. Rosario raised his head, and listened to her with attention. It was thus, said he, with a deep-drawn sigh, it was thus that, during the last month of her unhappy life, my sister used to sit listening to the nightingale. Poor Matilda! She sleeps in the grave, and her broken heart throbs no more with passion. You had a sister? You say right that I had. Alas, I have one no longer. She sank beneath the weight of her sorrows in the very spring of life. What were those sorrows? They will not excite your pity. You know not the power of those irresistible, those fatal sentiments to which her heart was a prey. Father, she loved, unfortunately, a passion for one endowed with every virtue, for a man, oh, rather let me say for a divinity, proved the bane of her existence. His noble form, his spotless character, his various talents, his wisdom, solid, wonderful, and glorious, might have warmed the bosom of the most insensible. My sister saw him, and dared to love, though she never dared to hope. If her love was so well bestowed, what forbade her to hope the obtaining of its object? Father, before he knew her, Julian had already plighted his vows to a bride most fair, most heavenly. Yet still my sister loved, and for the husband's sake she doted upon the wife. One morning she found means to escape from our father's house. Arrayed in humble weeds she offered herself as a domestic to the consort of her beloved, and was accepted. She was now continually in his presence. She strove to ingratiate herself into his favor. She succeeded. Her attentions attracted Julian's notice. The virtuous are ever grateful, and he distinguished Matilda above the rest of her companions. 
and did not your parents seek for her did they submit tamely to their loss nor attempt to recover their wandering daughter ere they could find her she discovered herself her love grew too violent for concealment yet she wished not for julian's person she ambitioned but a share of his heart in an unguarded moment she confessed her affection what was the return doting upon his wife and believing that a look of pity bestowed upon another was a theft from what he owed to her he drove matilda from his presence he forbade her ever again appearing before him his severity broke her heart she returned to her father's and in a few months after was carried to her grave unhappy girl surely her fate was too severe and julian was too cruel do you think so father cried the novice with vivacity do you think that he was cruel doubtless i do and pity her most sincerely you pity her you pity her oh father father then pity me the friar started when after a moment's pause rosario added with a faltering voice for my sufferings are still greater my sister had a friend a real friend who pitied the acuteness of her feelings nor reproached her with her inability to repress them i i have no friend the whole wide world cannot furnish an heart that is willing to participate in the sorrows of mine as he uttered these words he sobbed audibly the friar was affected he took rosario's hand and pressed it with tenderness you have no friend say you what then am i why will you not confide in me and what can you fear my severity have i ever used it with you the dignity of my habit rosario i lay aside the monk and bid you consider me as no other than your friend your father well may i assume that title for never did parent watch over a child more fondly than i have watched over you from the moment in which i first beheld you i perceived sensations in my bosom till then unknown to me i found a delight in your society which no one's else could afford and when i witnessed the extent of your genius and information i rejoiced as does a father in the perfections of his son then lay aside your fears speak to me with openness speak to me rosario and say that you will confide in me if my aid or my pity can alleviate your distress yours can yours only can ah father how willingly would i unveil to you my heart how willingly would i declare the secret which bows me down with its weight but oh i fear i fear what my son that you should abhor me for my weakness that the reward of my confidence should be the loss of your esteem how shall i reassure you reflect upon the whole of my past conduct upon the paternal tenderness which i have ever shown you abhor you rosario it is no longer in my power to give up your society would be to deprive myself of the greatest pleasure of my life then reveal to me what afflicts you and believe me while i solemnly swear 
"'Hold!' interrupted the novice. "'Swear that, whatever be my secret, "'you will not oblige me to quit the monastery "'till my novitiate shall expire.' "'I promise it, faithfully. "'And as I keep my vows to you, "'may Christ keep his to mankind. "'Now then, explain this mystery, "'and rely upon my indulgence.' "'I obey you. "'Know, then, oh, how I tremble to name the word. "'Listen to me with pity, Reverend Ambrosio. "'Call up every latent spark of human weakness "'that may teach you compassion for mine. "'Father,' continued he, "'throwing himself at the friar's feet "'and pressing his hand to his lips with eagerness "'while agitation for a moment choked his voice. "'Father,' continued he in faltering accents, I am a woman. The abbot started at this unexpected avowal. Prostrate on the ground lay the feigned Rosario, as if waiting in silence the decision of his judge. Astonishment on the one part, apprehension on the other, for some minutes chained them in the same attitudes as they had been touched by the rod of some magician. At length, recovering from his confusion, the monk quitted the grotto, and sped with precipitation towards the abbey. His action did not escape the suppliant. She sprang from the ground. She hastened to follow him, overtook him, threw herself in his passage, and embraced his knees. Ambrosio strove in vain to disengage himself from her grasp. "'Do not fly me,' she cried. Leave me not abandoned to the impulse of despair. Listen while I excuse my imprudence, while I acknowledge my sister's story to be my own. I am Matilda. You are her beloved. If Ambrosio's surprise was great at her first of all, upon hearing her second, it exceeded all bounds. Amazed, embarrassed, and irresolute, he found himself incapable of pronouncing a syllable, and remained in silence gazing upon Matilda. This gave her opportunity to continue her explanation as follows. Think not, Ambrosio, that I come to rob your bride of your affections. No, believe me, religion alone deserves you. And far is it from Matilda's wish to draw you from the paths of virtue. What I feel for you is love, not licentiousness. I sigh to be possessor of your heart, not lust for the enjoyment of your person. Deign to listen to my vindication. A few moments will convince you that this holy retreat is not polluted by my presence, and that you may grant me your compassion without trespassing against your vows. She seated herself. Ambrosio, scarcely conscious of what he did, followed her example, and she proceeded in her discourse. I sprang from a distinguished family. My father was chief of the noble house of Vianegas. He died while I was still an infant, and left me sole heiress of his immense possessions. Young and wealthy, I was sought in marriage by the noblest youths of Madrid, but no one succeeded in gaining my affections. I had been brought up under the care of an uncle possessed of the most solid judgment and extensive erudition. He took pleasure in communicating to me some portion of his knowledge. Under his instruction, 
my understanding acquired more strength and justness than generally falls to the lot of my sex the ability of my preceptor being aided by natural curiosity i not only made a considerable progress in sciences universally studied but in others revealed but to few and lying under censure from the blindness of superstition but while my guardian labored to enlarge the sphere of my knowledge he carefully inculcated every moral precept he relieved me from the shackles of vulgar prejudice he pointed out the beauty of religion he taught me to look with adoration upon the pure and virtuous and woe is me i have obeyed him but too well with such dispositions judge whether i could observe with any other sentiment than disgust the vice dissipation and ignorance which disgrace our spanish youth i rejected every offer with disdain my heart remained without a master till chance conducted me to the cathedral of the capuchins oh surely on that day my guardian angel slumbered neglectful of his charge then was it that i first beheld you you supplied the superior's place absent from illness you cannot but remember the lively enthusiasm which your discourse created oh how i drank your words how your eloquence seemed to steal me from myself i scarcely dared to breathe fearing to lose a syllable and while you spoke methought a radiant glory beamed round your head and your countenance shone with the majesty of a god i retired from the church glowing with admiration from that moment you became the idol of my heart the never-changing object of my meditations i inquired respecting you the reports which were made me of your mode of life of your knowledge piety and self-denial riveted the chains imposed on me by your eloquence i was conscious that there was no longer a void in my heart that i had found the man whom i had sought till then in vain in expectation of hearing you again every day i visited your cathedral you remained secluded within the abbey walls and i always withdrew wretched and disappointed the night was more propitious to me for then you stood before me in my dreams you vowed to me eternal friendship you led me through the paths of virtue and assisted me to support the vexations of life the morning dispelled these pleasing visions i awoke and found myself separated from you by barriers which appeared insurmountable time seemed only to increase the strength of my passion i grew melancholy and despondent i fled from society and my health declined daily at length no longer able to exist in this state of torture i resolved to assume the disguise in which you see me my artifice was fortunate i was received into the monastery and succeeded in gaining your esteem now then i should have felt completely happy had not my quiet been disturbed by the fear of detection the pleasure which i received from your society was embittered by the idea that perhaps i should soon be deprived of it and my heart throbbed so rapturously at obtaining the marks of your friendship as to convince me that i never should survive its loss i resolved therefore not to leave the discovery of my sex to chance to confess the whole to you and throw myself entirely on your mercy and indulgence ah ambrosio can i have been deceived can you be less generous than i thought you 
I will not suspect it. You will not drive a wretch to despair. I shall still be permitted to see you, to converse with you, to adore you. Your virtues shall be my example through life, and when we expire, our bodies shall rest in the same grave. She ceased. While she spoke, a thousand opposing sentiments combated in Ambrosio's bosom. Surprise at the singularity of this adventure, confusion at her abrupt declaration, resentment at her boldness in entering the monastery, and consciousness of the austerity with which it behooved him to reply, such were the sentiments of which he was aware. But there were others also which did not obtain his notice. He perceived not that his vanity was flattered by the praises bestowed upon his eloquence and virtue, that he felt a secret pleasure in reflecting that a young and seemingly lovely woman had for his sake abandoned the world and sacrificed every other passion to that which he had inspired. Still less did he perceive that his heart throbbed with desire, while his hand was pressed gently by Matilda's ivory fingers. By degrees he recovered from his confusion. His ideas became less bewildered. He was immediately sensible of the extreme impropriety should Matilda be permitted to remain in the abbey after this avowal of her sex. He assumed an air of severity and drew away his hand. "'How, lady,' said he, "'can you really hope for my permission to remain amongst us? Even were I to grant your request, what good could you derive from it? Think you that I can ever reply to an affection which... No, father, no. I expect not to inspire you with a love like mine. I only wish for the liberty to be near you, to pass some hours of the day in your society, to obtain your compassion, your friendship, and esteem. Surely my request is not unreasonable. But reflect, lady... Reflect only for a moment on the impropriety of my harboring a woman in the abbey, and that, too, a woman who confesses that she loves me. It must not be. The risk of your being discovered is too great, and I will not expose myself to so dangerous a temptation. Temptation, say you? Forget that I am a woman, and it no longer exists. Consider me only as a friend, as an unfortunate whose happiness whose life depends upon your protection. Fear not, lest I should ever call to your remembrance that love, the most impetuous, the most unbounded, has induced me to disguise my sex, or that, instigated by desires offensive to your vows and my own honor, I should endeavor to seduce you from the path of rectitude. No, Ambrosio, learn to know me better. I love you for your virtues." lose them and with them you lose my affections i look upon you as a saint prove to me that you are no more than man and i quit you with disgust is it then from me that you fear temptation from me in whom the world's dazzling pleasures created no other sentiment than contempt from me whose attachment is grounded on your exemption from human frailty Oh, dismiss such injurious apprehensions. Think nobler of me. Think nobler of yourself. I am incapable of seducing you to error, and surely your virtue is established on a basis too firm to be shaken by unwarranted desires. 
Ambrosio, dearest Ambrosio, drive me not from your presence. Remember your promise, and authorize my stay. Impossible, Matilda. Your interest commands me to refuse your prayer, since I tremble for you, not for myself. After vanquishing the impetuous ebullitions of youth, after passing thirty years in mortification and penance, I might safely permit your stay, nor fear your inspiring me with warmer sentiments than pity. But to yourself, remaining in the abbey can produce none but fatal consequences. You will misconstrue my every word and action. You will seize every circumstance with avidity which encourages you to hope the return of your affection. Insensibly, your passions will gain a superiority over your reason. And far from being repressed by my presence, every moment which we pass together will only serve to irritate and excite them. Believe me, unhappy woman, you possess my sincere compassion. I am convinced that you have hitherto acted upon the purest motives, but though you are blind to the imprudence of your conduct, in me it would be culpable not to open your eyes. I feel that duty obliges my treating you with harshness. I must reject your prayer, and remove every shadow of hope which may aid to nourish sentiments so pernicious to your repose. Matilda, you must from hence to-morrow. To-morrow? Ambrosio, to-morrow? Oh, surely you cannot mean it. You cannot resolve on driving me to despair. You cannot have the cruelty. You have heard my decision, and it must be obeyed. The laws of our order forbid your stay. It would be perjury to conceal that a woman is within these walls, and my vows will oblige me to declare your story to the community. You must from hence. I pity you, but can do no more. He pronounced these words in a faint and trembling voice. Then, rising from his seat, he would have hastened towards the monastery. Uttering a loud shriek, Matilda followed and detained him. Stay yet one moment, Ambrosio. Hear me yet speak one word. I dare not listen. Release me. You know my resolution. But one word? But one last word, and I have done. Leave me. Your entreaties are in vain. You must from hence to-morrow. Go, then, barbarian. But this resource is still left me. As she said this, she suddenly drew a poniard. She rent open her garment, and placed the weapon's point against her bosom. End of chapter 2, part 1. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.